We should be good. I think I can hear like a radio, Anthony. Yeah. Is someone playing like an FM radio in your house? No. <laughs> I do hear that too. You're not you're not crazy. Fred Shot, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you here. We've been fortunate enough to have a lot of really great, really accomplished guests on this show throughout the year we've been doing it, but I really think your work is in a class of its own in terms of its impact on the web development space. So we have so many cool things to talk about and to set the stage here. There's a range of projects you've been doing, and I think all of it kind of goes back to this Pika project that birthed a lot of it. And I actually have the first readme here up from it, which was published in January of 2019. It was talking about publishing packages. It says, authoring good packages in 2013 was simple. Write JavaScript and NPM publish. What has changed that made that more complicated? That's such a nice little flashback. Oh my God, it's been a while since. Yeah, this this project has really evolved over the years. Yeah, I've been very lucky to just kind of work on a lot of fun things out of this project. It all, yeah, you're totally right. It all came out of Pika. So that really came out of some work I was doing at Google at the time. I had been on the Polymer project, which was under the like, kind of Chrome umbrella. So this was 2015, 2016, right as ESM was basically being ratified. So that's the ability to use import and export in your JavaScript and essentially like give the browser a way to load code that was, you know, much more like in line with how modules were working in Node and all this history that we'd gained from Node, but built into the browser. So the whole Pika project was really like what changes when the browser and when JavaScript itself has a module system. So packages was kind of just the natural first place to look, seeing all of the things that NPM had to do to get around limitations and just how NPM had grown, kind of just like grown for the sake of growth. And there were a lot of decisions made just like to get numbers up. Some things were just a little bit more relaxed than they probably should be for a module system of a million packages. So there's new technology, a lot of old debt and, and package ecosystem was really where I first wanted to take a look in the space. The ESM stuff is what really attracted me to a lot of this work in the first place. It's been great because you are a prolific podcast guest, and I love listening to lots and lots of podcasts. So I've been able to follow this work that you've been doing very closely for going on probably two years now. And as more of these projects have started coming out, like Vite and other things that are very heavily based around ESM, it gave me the context to kind of understand it. It was a sea change in how web development works that we have been living through and will continue to live through for a long time. So I'm curious, like having been through this journey, do you feel like ESM has kind of gone mainstream yet? Or do you feel like we still haven't reached that tipping point yet? I mean, this moment right now that we're in is essentially what that, like going back to the packages problem was kind of not foretelling, but like was built around this idea of like, eventually Node's going to have to make the switch and it's going to be really hard, right? That idea of now if you're working in Node today, it's common to like, oh, this package only works in the old system. It doesn't work in ESM, but I need the old system because my company hasn't upgraded yet. There's this idea of it's like, it's a huge software migration that we're all undertaking kind of quietly without realizing it. So that was the idea that was kind of behind that. And, and it's kind of the same thing. A lot of what I'm lucky enough to get to work on is looking ahead a couple of years and trying to guess 
either where the puck is going or where I want it to go or where I think it should go and trying to build around that future. So Veep being kind of a classic, we had started Snowpack and Evan had started Feet around the same time, but both looking at what happens when, okay, take away the packaging question, just like a build tool for web developers that isn't trying to do all of the heavy lifting of Webpack because actually a lot of that is based on limitations. And if you give a bundler the ESM language, it can actually do a lot more stuff close to the browser. It actually can kind of offload a lot of responsibility like module loading and hot updates and all this stuff around how your dev environment works that not only is easier as a tool to build, but it's also faster. Veed and Snowpack were both kind of out of that. Okay, let's let's look at another problem with this technology. It's That was the nice thing about Pika. It had this kind of guiding mentality of like the technology is going to change a lot. We're just really early. I think it's hit the mainstream and that we've all been writing this code ourselves for five years now. I mean, people at different stages. It's been out in the world being written for a long time. It's only now that we're starting to actually ship it to browsers now that they've caught up. I am going to hold up my hands and say I'm not really much of an expert on module systems. So I know what they they are. And like ESM is this thing that we all should be using. As you said, it's a transition. My biggest gripe I've had so far with it is actually really, really recently. And that's Sindorus has recently updated all of his core modules to only support ESM. So obviously, if you're a manic that likes to always have all of them version numbers up to date, and you use something like, say, Next.js, or something like Webpack, and you'll update it, you'll go to run it, and it goes, Webpack just doesn't know what to do, because obviously, I don't think it compiles ESM. Obviously, you're much more of an expert on this than me. But I just went, what do I need to do? It looks too complex. I'll downgrade for now, waiting for someone else to fix my ESM problems. It's the migration that I think needs to give, be given the most credit. Like take away the like, this language looks like this and this other one, you know, the old system looks like this, the new thing looks like this. Even from that, it's like we are moving a million packages quietly from a totally lower level. Like that's, I don't, I can't think of one that's been done or maybe like Python 2 to Python 3. Like there are like horror stories of people trying this. And I think giving the people a little bit of credit that it hasn't like exploded, but it is still really painful. And I've had to upgrade one or two things where it's like, oh, well, this package needs this, but this other one needs that. I can't make both of them happy. At the same time, I, I see a lot of people like on the node team and the people who are trying to push this migration are also trying to limit some things in the new system, trying to like, again, fix old mistakes, things that they feel like they shouldn't have allowed in the older require module.exports world. Importing by a file path without an extension, I can't remember where that landed, but like in some projects, you just, you need an extension. There's no smart folder lookups. There's no like, if you miss the extension, we'll add it back for you. TypeScript is like, no, like we don't, like everyone's just kind of like now in this weird muck of like competing ideas because so much has changed at a lower level. Everyone trying to figure it out. Webpack does support ESM, but again, at that package layout level, it's like if the package isn't set up to point to it, the package author had to do the right thing, Webpack had to do the right thing. Not to go on a total tangent, but like as someone building a build tool, right? Snowpack and Rollup and Webpack, where it really gets tricky is they all have different ideas of what a package should look like. Snowpack says module, right? That's ESM module, that's the place. But Webpack will say, well, no, that's for node-specific module. You really want to put your like, and it's everyone has a different idea of where that should go. And there isn't a right answer because there's no leadership there from NPM. I've quickly played around with Snowpack before going too much on it because it's something I'm sure we want to talk about. But I think the biggest thing with it is that it's so good, but Next.js and all these big frameworks still use Webpack, so you're kind of stuck. 
I think Vercel just very loudly hired the uh, lead maintainer of SWC, which is a Rust-powered compiler. Yeah, I wouldn't count them out. They're, they are aware of how they're falling behind here. So Snowpack, one of the things that we're able to take advantage of is this idea of a of native compiled compiler. So ESBuild being the kind of most hot one right now, where you can just, instead of Babel or a JavaScript built tool that might be a little slower, you get this like Go-powered binary that's just going to like, in a millisecond, build your files. So... There was this kind of like, there's a name for that where it's like just such a seismic shift where all of a sudden build tools that use that are able to ship, you know, 10 or 100x faster build and tools that don't are kind of being left behind a bit. Next.js has so many users. I, if anyone's going to be left behind, it's not them, but they clearly see like, oh no, there's something big happening. We need to play catch up. And then there's going to be a big migration path. The users always want us to pay the price of, of upgrading. I know... Webpack's trying to do it. They're like trying to like kind of ease out if you're using Webpack specific, or sorry, Next.js, if you're using Webpack specific configuration, like start to not do that is essentially their answer, which isn't much of an answer. I, I'm sure they'll have to figure it out. But yeah, again, it's the user who kind of has to pay the migration cost always. While we're talking about things like Webpack, I think we should really dig into what Snowpack is because a lot of frameworks, as we said, still use Webpack. But Snowpack is this, really really cool thing and if you've been adventurous to try something very low down snowpack's really really cool i've had a little bit of usage but i'm sure you two have had a lot more obviously let's talk about the big benefits over something like webpack just straight out of the box how is snowpack better zero configuration changes out of the box and we can even just talk about like conceptually a bit and then we'll, we'll kind of reel it back because the conceptual difference is the main difference and everything flows out of that. In Webpack, Webpack is a bundler. Kind of the flaw of building everything for the last decade on top of bundlers means that you're stuck in the kind of like way of a bundler. Like you're thinking in bundlers, you're bundling during development, in production, always bundling, 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 bundling. The problem there is as your project grows, you're now having to like, even just to start up the dev server, you're going to do some bundling. So you're actually like going out, scanning your files, you're doing this work that's actually based on how big your project gets. So as it gets bigger, your startup times get slower and your dev environment gets slower. Snowpack, by not having to do so much bundling, again, we're able to leverage that like ESM module thing where it's like the browser doesn't need me to bundle anymore. I can kind of ship it this code and it actually knows what to do. It'll load things, it'll fetch things from my build. Like it actually lets the browser do a lot of that loading. It's not that we're a better bundler. We just actually don't do bundling during development because now the browser has the tools to load code on its own. So you start to see bundling more as it was a, a workaround for a limitation where the browser couldn't load code. So let's bundle it and send it to the browser and the browser will just get these really dumb files. Webpack is telling the browser what to do. Now it's this like kind of like symbiotic relationship where like the browser will load the page and then Snowpack will give it back like its HTML and some of the JavaScript files. The browser will see those JavaScript files, see what they need to load, and then forever just it'll ask for files, it'll load them, it'll see what it needs, it'll load more, and it'll stream basically down what it needs to load the page. The result of that is there's zero startup cost. It's essentially an instant startup because it's that first page load that is going to kick off the building and loading only of what's needed. You know, that first page load is definitely slower than a webpacks because you didn't just spend a minute starting up. But the idea is that no matter how, like really the core idea is that no matter how big your project is, you're still only like on that first page load going to build the files you need. So you will essentially just like never touch those files on that like 404 page or that about page that you, you don't really use unless you're building it and seeing it and trying to work on that in development. It's only once you go to build that you're actually going to touch that file and actually build it because obviously in production you'll need it. But during development, you get this essentially like it scales with beautifully with any size project versus the existing ecosystem will really slow down as you grow, which is one of those problems that's really hard to see at the start. And then like two years down the road, you've kind of dug yourself into a hole. It, it seems like a really oversimplification, 
But when we talk about like bundling and compiling, to me, I always like imagine it as some like, as the end product cannot understand the beginning product and it needs to like slowly go down the pipe to get it to understand it by adding things, then translating things. And then when we talk about things like Snowpack, it's just making that a lot smaller. You should call it a game of telephone is the the term you're looking for there, Chris. (laughs) There we go. Maybe. Maybe. I'm sorry, I'm not sure what the question is. I missed the question there, but... <laughs> you had mentioned that you still need to bundle in production. And so, for me, the way I think about this is you want to minimize the amount of requests that have to go over the wire because latency and TLS handshakes and all this stuff that you don't want to have to make, you know, a request for every single module because that would just be ridiculous. So is that kind of why you still need to bundle for production or are there other reasons as well? And just what considerations go into bundling for production versus development? That's where in this new world and new way of thinking, you start to think of bundling more as kind of what it always was originally before the Webpack and NPM kind of explosion, which was it's an optimization. So yeah, the browser is still, if you ship your raw source code to the browser, especially on large projects, that's going to be thousands of files that the browser is able to kind of parallel load them, but it's still like, instead of getting everything at once, loading it and parsing it and being done, you're still like, basically it's, it's not as optimized. It's, it's reading, it's loading, it's reading again, it's loading again, and it's juggling all this. And it's slower than if you just bundle. A lot of extra snowback was like trying to figure out, do we still need bundling? And the kind of end result was if you can do it in a way where the user doesn't have to worry about it so much, now that it's a production optimization, it's a little bit more invisible. It's a little bit less complexity that the user needs to understand. In general, it's still the right call. It's nice that we get to kind of just push it down to the end versus building everything on top of a bundler. But even with the advances in HTTP2 and HTTP3, these like newer network protocols that let you do more loading in parallel, it's still a good idea to bundle even simply just to uh, optimize for that user's experience. Yeah, I keep hearing about HTTP2 and how it'll fix all this, but everyone's still on HTTP 1.1 for the most part. The internet is always slowly migrating in different pieces, you know, slowly but surely. H2 was supposed to fix everything and H3 was supposed to fix everything. I'm sure H4 will also try to fix everything. It does keep getting better. But yeah, it's that was a lot of my hope with Snowpack is my bet is that this isn't required anymore. And I was more or less, I think, proven wrong. It's still nice to have at the very least. And I know that Vite brings in Rollup to do the production build. And I believe Snowpack, you are still using ES build to do that. Is that correct? Snowpack started with no bundler built in because that was the bet. We're an experimental tool. We aren't even V1 yet. Let's push the boundaries a bit. We originally were like, you shouldn't, like, if you want to bundle, you can. But again, it's a production optimization. You do the work. We're not going to do that. It sounded really cool at the time. I, even now, like a couple of years later, it's like, yeah, that's a little alienating to people. Like, you do the work. Because what was the bet of this won't be needed actually is it's kind of needed. Around V2, we shipped a ES build powered compiler and bundler, getting all that benefits of like, you know, a literal go binary doing your bundling for you instead of Webpack. It's really fast. It's, it's really nice. But again, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of Webpack. ES build is a much, much, much newer project. So if you still want to use Webpack, you want to use Rollup, we do give you hooks to essentially bring in a plugin that will connect that bundler for you. So you do get a little bit more of a mix and match. Snowpack's doing all the work of building your site so that by the time the bundler gets it, it's just JavaScript and CSS and HTML. So you don't need all the configuration at the very least. We, we do kind of strip that out from the bundling stuff. Yeah, it's hard with these tools because as we're moving from the old group of technologies to this newer one, it's hard to know which things are being replaced by which others. And so as you say, like ES build is not really a replacement for Webpack. I would usually tell people that 
Snowpack and Vite are meant to be replacements for Webpack. And then you have things like SWC as well, which is kind of almost like a replacement for Babel. And then you have the question, okay, well, what's the difference between Babel and Webpack? Because most people use Babel and Webpack together and don't even realize where the boundaries are between those two tools. So where does the Babel stuff come into this story? It's surprising how much has changed in so short a time. Like, I feel like there was like a couple of years of just nothing really changing. We used Webpack, we used Babel, and that was that. I certainly did. And then like right around, yeah, around when Pika got started, I don't think we caused it, but like, I think we just were like right place, right time. There was this like just resurgence in, no, let's like revisit core things. We have this new ESM, we have WASM, we have these Go libraries that we can write. A lot is changing. I don't think there is one answer there. Like the lines have been blurred again. So we're kind of trying to figure that out. ES build, the way that we use it most is as a, one-to-one file transformation. So give us your, you know, like app.jsx, right? And it's a React file, it's a JSX file. And ESBuild is just, it's not even gonna bundle, it's just gonna transform that to JavaScript. ESBuild is a bundler, but it's also doing this thing that you would have used Babel for. At the same time, it like doesn't at all wanna be as configurable as Babel. Yeah, what do you call that? I, I don't know. It's a really cool tool for sure. It's so fast that like everyone has just kind of adopted it because it's so fast. But to make things even more complicated, Evan, I'm gonna blank his last name, but, CTO of Figma who actually built ESBuild is like very explicitly like, I want to prove that this is possible. I don't know if I'm going to work on this forever. So at the same time, you're like, how do I bet on this in the future? It's a proof of concept by, you know, the own author's admission. Hmm, Yeah, Evan Wallace is his name. I hadn't heard that actually. That's good to know. I probably am overstating, like, I think that's how he started. Like, how do you as a CTO of a major company rationalize working on a bundler? People probably want to give him a bunch of money to work on ES build now, but who knows? Like open source is, is so, so weird. And you are building kind of like also a company around this stuff as well. And I know that Skypack is a big part of this story as well. So where does the non-open source parts of this come into play? Because Skypack is, it's like a CDN, right? And so I always kind of thought that that was meant to be the connection point between a lot of this stuff, because once you can leverage ESM, you can import URLs and straight into the browser. And so is that also the idea here? Skypack was all coming back to this idea of Pika looking at the ESM technology and like what changes. Packages were some of the first exploration. Snowpack was like looking at build tools. Skypack was yeah, looking at what does even code loading and code distribution look like in a world of ESM. The nice thing about this ESM syntax is the browser like loves URLs, it loves loading things from URLs. So there's actually no difference between a relative like, hey, load this JavaScript file that I've hosted and I've shipped with my website versus, hey, load this like totally external file from a third-party CDN. It's a very old school callback to like when you loaded jQuery from a CDN, if you ever worked at that time. Like there used to be this idea of third-party CDNs actually hosting a lot of the code you would need. You'd get this really nice, like they had done the work of scalability and and distributing this thing. And then there's this kind of like unproven, but still conceptually sound theory of like, my user will probably have seen this URL before somewhere. Like some other site has loaded jQuery and some other site has probably loaded jQuery from Google CDN or jQuery CDN. So if I load it from there and the browser's already seen it before, then my user actually doesn't even have to hit that request. It can skip that part of the site. Imagine how much faster my site would be if like all of my dependencies didn't have to get loaded at all because the user had been visiting different websites, seeing these files, and now was coming to me with a warm cache. That is an older model that is really phased out in the world of NPM and Webpack where everyone bundles their own stuff. And the bet with Skypack was that's going to come back. If we can distribute your dependencies via that sort of import by URL, and we'll do all the work of optimizing them, you'll also get that extra benefit of if I load this from my site, there's a chance that users already warmed their cache from some other site. The more people use it, the faster the whole network gets. That was the big bet with Skypack. Using like a CDN script was how I started 
coding when I did web dev. You know, if you've been around long enough, you was like, oh, I put my jQuery, my Bootstrap, CSS. You put all your files in the header, and all be fine. Everything will load. Or you need to use a carousel, find the carousel CDN, stick that in. And then it just kind of disappeared. And it was this whole different way of thinking of, you kind of, you know, use SAS. So you already knew about some pre-compiling to get all these benefits. And then it took it whole to the next level with compiling it completely. And I think the only place it still really exists, if you're in this like modern JavaScript world, if you're at a company that needs to compile some kind of script that then needs to be loaded on a third party website, Normally that scripts in like common JS. And this is a really interesting part of the internet that caught me by surprise is you have to make a script for your own company. I need to install that script onto any website and it needs to do X functionality. We see a lot of chatbots and stuff like that. Where do you actually host that script? So you've made your, your common JS script. Where do you host it? And I've done this. I've hosted it on four different providers because it's super confusing. And the best provider, surprisingly, was Vercel. This script that I have for my company that goes on to all these other websites, the best place to host it was Vercel because of the cache management and it just did all of that. But it's super confusing, that area of the internet of like, I need to make a script that runs on every other person's website. I feel like I'm always in this position where it's like so much of what Snowpack is doing is trying to fix problems in Webpack, but you can't do that without acknowledging everyone in the world uses Webpack or some other thing trying to be Webpack. It got rid of that exact problem where it's like, I just run it all through this one tool and it's going to do everything for me. So like Gulp and Grunt, I used to spend so much time on the Bower ecosystem. There's all these like pieces that I had to fit together with tools that never really worked or they're written in Java, so I couldn't debug them. And all of a sudden, like NPM, Webpack, Babel, this like class of tools that now is seen as maybe slower, older school, but like they solved a lot of problems. Even that in that story, like, I don't know if web developers just like are masochistic. We like doing things that are horrible. Because <laughs> what you just described, like I, I have flashbacks to stuff I've done that's not too different. I do remember the battles of like developers, Grunt or Gulp, and you're like, well, I only use Gulp. Well, I only use Grunt. And you're like, and it's normally, you need a certain, thing like uglification okay uglification gulp uglification grunt you move to a different agency and they only use grunt you're like i've got to learn grunt we just moved away from that it's so funny because i think we tend to do it every five years this next cycle of now this is it then this one thing I like about ESBelt is that it's really like, and again, maybe it's because of some opinions by its creator, Evan, or maybe it's just like they're trying to fix something that they saw as a problem in Babel, but like it really doesn't let you configure much. You can tell it like how a JavaScript file should be loaded or a JSX file or like a, even a Svelte or a view component. But like if you're like, oh, I want to like add this thing so I don't have to do this. Like Babel was so customizable that we got this world where it's like, and we saw this as Snowpack. How do I move my site to Snowpack? The answer was like, it totally depends what you've done to your site that's custom because we're built on ESBuild. We're not going to support your Webpack plugins. We're not going to support that Babel transform or, you know, we are, but it's like a couple extra steps. It was really like the more customization you did, which I don't think was ever seen as like a bad thing. I feel like it is becoming more of a like quote unquote bad thing where if you're doing it just because of personal preference, I think we now see, and I hope we're talking about this enough, like you're kind of digging yourself this hole where you're locking yourself into that one ecosystem, which when Webpack was the only thing out there, fine, who cares? But now in this world where we don't know what the next tool is going to be, will it be Snowpack or Veed or something totally different? The more you customize for one system, the more you lock yourself into that system. And I think that's a risk going into the next couple of years. So if there's a good reason, like some CSS and JS, some like library that you really want and it needs a Babel plugin, 
go for it. Like totally fine. But if there's some personal thing where it's like, oh, I just don't like to do dot, dot, dot. And instead of changing my opinion about this totally like non-consequential thing, I'm going to write a Babel plugin or a Webpack plugin. That's where I would definitely recommend people hold off just because you don't want to lock yourself in for a bad reason. For a good reason, totally. But we just, I've seen a lot of people struggle to adopt whether it's Snowpack or V because they're so ingrained in the Webpack configuration world that they've dug this hole that they can't get out of. A quick side point is I think JavaScript's lacked a strong default options for a very long time. And that's what you just said with ES Build. It doesn't let you customize much. If we look at things like, you know, Apple with privacy filters, I think it was like 80% of people choose not to be tracked by default. And obviously that has gone carnage elsewhere. With this thing of how many developers really need to understand everything is happening underneath, how they need to customize it, or do they just want to load TypeScript? or a tailwind. And I know them two big things are things that Snowpack has built in out of the box. So no customization needed. You just start using it. If I have any hope for this next generation of tooling, I think it's going to be based on like, there's just less complexity. So you can do a little bit more. I just said like, don't customize too much, but I think like adding support for X or Y, now I'm about to contradict myself. I don't know what to say about that. Um, I realize I'm about to say like customize away. It's so much easier, but like that's the exact problem. What we didn't understand about building on top of Webpack was that we were building on top of a very complicated tool. If you're, you know, create React app or even Next.js, when your foundation is this level of complexity, you've kind of already swallowed that pill. So you're going to reach for things like, how do I fix this? Oh, I'll like add something to my bundler. I'll like add complexity at the build step because it's already so complex. It's already, and I have to use it all the time. I have to use it during development. I have to use it in production. A lot of libraries, I think in the last couple of years came out in that, like at that time where, oh, I have to add a plugin for Webpack. Okay, fine. Like, I don't care. I know a lot of CSS and JavaScript libraries do that. But once you take away that foundation, really the whole thing just gets so much more simple. In that like what we're able to do again we, we don't have to bundle your whole project ahead of time when you load a file we build it and we serve it it's such a simple model versus like everything's getting bundled and you don't know what webpack's doing it's this nest that you know every time they upgrade it takes them a while because there's so much complexity there both snowpack and Vite have just this really clean model of like build a file get a result ship it to the user it's a one-to-one -one file transform which is just so much easier to reason about so to add something like SAS support or Tailwind support, you're just not worried about all these side effects and what might go wrong. When I build this file, what should the result be? And if I can think that way across every file, that's a really simple model that, that is only going to benefit these integrations and these tooling authors. And now that we've set the context with Snowpack, I'd like to get into Astro here because Astro to me is a tool that's trying to demonstrate what you can do with Snowpack and when you start building on this new sort of tool, what sort of frameworks or libraries can we create with it? So I think Astro would be considered a framework in your eyes, though it's not really that important. I think whether it's a library or a framework, but it's a way to take things like JSX and transform them into HTML. And I know partial hydration is a really big part of it. So what is your high level pitch for Astro? How does it compare it to other things in the ecosystem? I mean, it's definitely what I'm most excited about right now. And I, I love this format, by the way, because I feel like we've kind of like, we've set a lot of foundation lane, which I can just now like totally blow by. This is really, I think you put it exactly right. That was very intuitive. Like this is the, when you build all this foundation setting and you have your snowpack and you have ESM module loading, when you're thinking in this world of ESM, Astro is like, what is possible now? It's probably the least like ESM exploration than anything we've done. And it's much more like, 
now that I have Snowpack, what can I do with it? So it is essentially a way to build websites that treats every asset as a top level asset. This is like the Snowpack, and there's a lot more going on there, but the Snowpack angle is like a bundler, everything is JavaScript, right? So even that CSS file, you're gonna have to like bundle as JavaScript somehow, or like throw it off as an asset to kind of come back later. Bundlers are really like JavaScript first. What's awesome about Astro is that we're actually like HTML first. Instead of building everything to JavaScript and bundling and that's your build tool, we actually take your site and essentially every page of it, write it to HTML. So that sounds a lot like what Next.js is doing or one of those, but what's really nice about this is the actual foundation of what you're building isn't a, Re a React or a JavaScript app. It's much more like an old school templating language where the actual foundation is the HTML. Instead of like, okay, how do I optimize this big JavaScript application that I built? It feels a lot like a Next.js, but it's actually writing JavaScript out. So, or sorry, writing HTML out. And so the end result is much more like, we'll strip away anything that's not needed, we'll optimize it around HTML as the kind of base level, really static, really fast language. You get these basically a, a built-in solution just conceptually to the problem of, ah, I'm shipping all this JavaScript and what, why, what's going on? Like my site's slow, I don't understand it. It's really hard to build a slow site with Astro and that's because of that conceptual HTML first identity. I watched one of your talks you did where you said that Astro is HTML, but with superpowers instead of JavaScript with superpowers. It was really, I think it was the React Conf talk. I gave it a go. What really blew me away was not just using HTML, but when you, obviously in your demo, you show now adding a React component and having every bit of React that you, you might need to, you know, make something functional in this like encapsulated file without running anything else. It just completely blew my mind. And that's me being 100% honest of like, I'm just writing HTML. I need to write this one price slider. You don't need to install React. You install, say, the React package you need, say, React Ranger. Write the slider and it's done. It just works. Honestly, I know I said it, but it completely blew my mind of like, that was it. That was just React without React, as you also say in that talk. How does it even work, truly? <laughs> it blows my mind, like, because we're, we're building our doc site in Astro, we're building our website. I use Astro a lot now, and it, it constantly blows me away, which is a cool feeling. Yeah, so what you're describing is partial hydration is that idea of, like, essentially the whole site doesn't have to be JavaScript. We can actually ship HTML and then only hydrate the parts of your site that need it. So, like, a React component, right? Most of your site being static HTML, you got your layout, you got your header, your body, but then all of a sudden you have, like, an image carousel. That obviously needs interactivity. So instead of shipping JavaScript for everything and then only using a small bit of it, the idea is ship HTML for everything and then only send JavaScript for the components that need it. Only send JavaScript for that carousel and think of it as this isolated component on the page. With a developer experience, it still feels like you're building a, a full kind of application. And this is a concept that you called Islands Architect. Yeah, so if you take that to the extreme, that's Islands Architecture. And I actually didn't coin this. I think Jason Miller did, and he might've actually stolen it from someone else. He, he gives credit, I think, in his blog post to, or on Twitter somewhere, but not important. The idea is take that idea to the extreme, like build your site on top of this idea and think of your interactive components as islands on the page in a sea of static HTML, basically. And so again, instead of like a world where you've bundled everything, the bundler, bundler, bundler being the most important thing, we live in this world where it's actually HTML being written, components being injected. Instead of having a top level app that's JavaScript, each one is an isolated island. Let's say you have a really lightweight header and a really heavy component that's like a, a carousel. These are all gonna load and render in isolation. So that header will kind of kick in much, much quicker while 
not being blocked by this image carousel that might be heavier and have a lot more weight to it. You can also do some really cool things. Like if that image carousel isn't even top above the fold, you can actually give it a special directive that'll basically say, only hydrate this once it becomes visible. So if it's below the page, like, we aren't even going to kick that off. That'll just like when you scroll there, if you scroll there, we'll load it. But that Lighthouse score that's based on first page load, it won't even, it'll be like it doesn't even exist. And that's very different from the current way of doing things where your whole page is thought of as one bundle. So no matter where it is on the page, you're going to load that for the user and it's going to block that thing that you actually need that's critical because it's all in one bundle. My biggest question after seeing that initial counter and build my own counter and see my own React boat was, what about data fetching? This is a really interesting question because it's kind of a hard one. It depends how you want to fetch your data to the answer, isn't it? And I think this is where we get into like, we're still pre one, v one, like it's still a beta. We're still figuring this stuff out ourselves. So if, to any listeners, if this sounds interesting, like come join us, it's a really interesting problem. It, it really right now, we lean a lot on it depends, which is I think what we're trying to get rid of for v1 and actually give some opinions about it but right now if you do it within an astro kind of an html component it's going to load it at build time so it's actually a it's a data fetch that your user will never see it'll get loaded we support fetch and async await all these nice things in your build step so that by the time it gets built it's already basically rendered into the template that works for things that are like generally useful because it's being shipped to everyone. But if there's something like user specific, like let's say like a little user avatar in the header, then you're going to need to send it as a React component. And that React component is going to have to do some data loading. So that's where it's it's just basically, and, and we support Preact, Views, Svelte. It's basically just however that component ecosystem does data loading. You know, it's in the browser. Fetch is pretty much um, standardly available now. We kind of lean on that a lot. It depends is kind of the answer there, but it's all possible. And it's it's just on you basically understanding, is this interactive or isn't it? And if it's interactive, I need to think of it as running in the browser and rendering in the browser. One of the demos you used in the talk was that you showed fetching Pokemon. Yeah, a lot of our demos are Pokemon based. I was going to say Pokemon Pokemons as like the animal in the show. The Pokemon Pokemons using the fetch state after client load. My big question was, when I last checked, I didn't know if you could do it was to use some kind of like headless CMSs with Astro yet. Is that something that is supported going to be or maybe not? Because I think that's the interesting question is if someone asked me right now is like, I just want to build a marketing website super, super fast with like my HTML knowledge, um, some React, I'd say Astro is probably what you want. And then if they say, oh, it also needs a CMS. What kind of CMS is a markdown CMS? Yes. Astro again. Is it headless CMS? I don't know <laughs> if it is supported so far. That's one of those things that I'm most excited about is more examples, more tutorials. But the answer to all those questions is like, yes, Astro can do it. Cassidy of Netlify has been doing a lot of Shopify e-commerce sites with Astro. Chris Coyer built a basically a CSS tricks in Astro that's talking to a WordPress CMS. So yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like, if it's being loaded as a part of like, what pages do I want to generate? How does my site, like, I actually want to talk to CMS and generate pages from that CMS. That is totally within the world of Astro, fetching that data and creating pages from it. So it's like definitely a top level, like thing we want to support going into V1. There are a couple of examples. We just haven't brought them all together yet, which is definitely on us. It sounds stupid, but a lot of marketing websites are built in Gatsby and Next when 90% of the features are not needed. It sounds like Astro may be one of these, once all the documentations together, this very, you want to use like React, but also just a simple marketing website, you know, not a dashboard. Astro may really be a really good candidate for that. 
This is a good segue, and I want to get into the comparison page you have on your docs, which is really fantastic. I wish that every project had this, which is Astro versus X, and you have comparisons with Jekyll and Hugo, so old school static site generators. You have stuff like DocuSource and ViewPress, and you have Nuxt and Next, Elevendy, and SvelteKit. Now, the one that I do think is missing here that should be here is Elder.js, because Elder.js is, I think, one of the only other ones out there that actually does do partial hydration. But the main takeaway when you read through this is that you are just going to get huge performance hits for things like DocuSource and ViewPress compared to these more partial hydration-based models. What do you think is anything else that might be comparable to it? The only other one that I know would be Slinkity, which is very, very new, but is taking 11D and adding Vite to try and create a similar experience to Astro. So do you see other projects that are sort of taking influence from this idea? Yeah, Slinkity is, is awesome, actually. That um, Ben... Ben Holmes. Yeah, that's a great project. It's very aligned with what we're doing. Yeah, I think he uses Snowpack. Maybe they switched to Vite. He did, yeah, like just a week ago. I'm kind of working with him a little bit. I just wrote like the first blog post about it yesterday. Oh, nice. Yeah, Ben's great. I, like he, the launch video for that, I think was the most creative, unique thing I've ever seen where it's like him in front of a whiteboard, no flashy animations. Oh, I love that. Ben's great. Yeah, that's totally aligned with what like, yeah, it's that same idea. I think it's Island's architecture even. He might even call it that. You're using 11D, so you're getting that HTML generation. And then it's the components on the page. I think he uses short code, so he hasn't gone as far as we did into like, no, we want you to use something that feels like JSX. But that same idea of you're thinking in HTML first and then adding hydration, adding interactivity where you need it. I don't think that's public yet. I'm like waiting to play with it. So technically it's supposed to be released tomorrow, but since I wrote the blog post, it kind of was like a little bit of an early launch. So yeah, I kind of jumped the gun a bit. I have a bad habit of doing this. I get too excited and I'm like, ship it, just ship it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's totally, it's, it's exciting to see more things that just aren't JavaScript as the default built-in thing. I think once you start thinking in V or Snowpack, it's just, it opens up your mind a bit to seeing how this would work. Where do you think Astro is going in the future? You've mentioned V1 a couple times. Is there any sort of very general timeline? We we, we work a lot on, on Redwood here. and Our V1 story has taken a very long time as well. So we're, we're very sympathetic to that. But I'd be kind of curious how you're thinking about this progression and when you're going to think of it as kind of being something you want to really advertise as like, this is production ready. We want this to be like a V1 type thing. I, yeah, I don't I don't even want to commit to it. It's we're trying to get there soon. I think what we're really looking at is like things that would break a ecosystem. Because I think what we're most excited about is like what components would you build for Astro, what themes? RV1 is really limited to like what is something we want to commit to as a stable syntax, a stable behavior, so that you can then like confidently build on top of it. Because that's what I'm most excited about. Just like, yeah, the ecosystem I feel like is always the most important thing in a project. Like the React ecosystem is great. Views ecosystem is great. They kind of define the project. And so I think this idea of what if there was an ecosystem that was HTML first? I can't think of anything that exists like that today where we let you use React components, we let you use Vue or Svelte or anything. But at the same time, like what if there were these HTML first components so that you weren't opting into JavaScript before you needed to, you weren't having to make that decision too early. You could just use something that was designed for HTML. It's so funny that you originally were working on the Polymer project. That, that's kind of how this episode started, because why wasn't this web components? <laughs> yeah, I've gotten that before. It's like, it sounds like you're just trying to do web components, but different. It's like, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. Like, why did web components fail? Why did it not solve problems? Why did it not become adopted? Like, I have no real context there because I didn't kind of live through it. But I'm very curious about that from like a historical angle. That could be a whole episode of its own. You should talk to some people who've worked on it. I haven't worked on that in a while. Give me your hottest hot takes. 
I would say I don't think that they think that it's failed. I think if you look at how many sites have a web component on the page today, it's a higher number than you'd think. I'll have to look into that then. But as a PR kind of you know fight, it's hard to say they won that fight, but it's out there for sure. You got any more questions, Chris, before we start closing it out here? I think you answered my question about the like headless CMS situation, because that was my biggest head scratcher with Astro. If that was ticked, I could see using it for literally 85% of my React projects, just out the gate as like, this is pretty much everything I need out the gate. My final question, we do have a lot of listeners that do like to sometimes help out. What is currently Astro pain points? What could you need help with? What potential areas could anyone help out with? Because I know it's very collaborative, especially on your Discord. The nice part about having done this a couple of times, like started with Snowpack and Skypack, I feel like this is the first time I felt really like our Discord got it right. An amazing community of developers there kind of helping out on all sorts of things. We actually just rewrote our like how to get involved section. So this is actually the perfect time to ask me that. There's a couple of issues that are tagged as, you know, good first issue. We're super supportive of people just jumping in and, and getting involved that way. Our support channel is getting active as more people use it. So helping out, just being a part of the Discord. And translations are actually something we've been really focusing on. We kind of opened it up for one or two languages and like all of a sudden people start submitting more and more translations. So if there's a language that you speak that no one else does, we're kind of like open to translating anything at this point. I'm not trying to lock it down too much and have just seen a ton of excitement in that space. Something that also, as we get closer to V1, we're gonna really commit to. But yeah, I mean, even just to come and hang out, like we, we do events, we do office hours, we do RFC calls that we stream on Discord. We're playing Jackbox games like on Fridays. Like it's a really fun community that I'm, I'm really proud of. That's at astro.build slash chat is the URL I should give that. If there's one thing you've heard from this episode that I mean it as like you should 100% do this, is just run Astro Build and make a React component. It will blow your mind. Trust me, a React component in Astro with none of the wrappers of React even using things like use state is mind blowing. Trust me. You have to see it to believe it. <laughs> there was a point that I think you made that is really kind of key here, which is for most of the, the web, it's not like dashboards and chat apps and email inboxes or Facebook. Like a lot of the web is just static content. So you said like, oh, for 85%, this is what I would use. Like that's, I think exactly the point here is that the 85% of the web or whatever that number is, like hasn't been best served by a really JavaScript heavy framework. I think they have been waiting for something that's much more HTML first because most content on the web, e-commerce, a blog, a, a content site, it's all about getting content, getting posts that you've written, images for a product you might want to buy. Like you don't need all of that heavy lifting of a heavy JavaScript framework. You can start from like first principles of HTML. I'm just excited by the idea that there hasn't really been anything like this. And that has been a kind of unanswered question for a long time. Slinkity as well, I, I think is a great way to look at this, but Astro being a way to solve that problem and build something that's static first, HTML first is really exciting to me. And we'll include links to all those things we were just talking about in the show notes. And then for people who want to get in touch with you, where can they follow you? Where can they contact you? So I'm hanging out on Discord all the time. So that astro.build slash chat. Most days I'm in there, but uh, I'm also on Twitter at Fred K. Shot. That's just my name spelled out. Yeah, I'm on Twitter pretty actively as well. Well, thank you so much, Fred. It was a real pleasure getting to speak with you. And thank you so much for all this stuff you've built. <laughs> That's super cool and helping to push the web forward. I've really enjoyed just getting to follow this work for my own development in terms of learning how things are changing, how they're going to be in the future. 
I find that even if you're not going to use some of these things in production, it's very, very useful to be aware of them and to know why they are making the choices they do, because it gives you a better understanding of how the web works, what are the pain points of the web, how you should be addressing them in your own apps. And then maybe after you try fixing that problem yourself, you realize like, okay, I'm pretty sure Someone already said there's a framework for this. Maybe I should just go use that framework. Yeah, it's a really fun. I mean, I've been lucky enough to just have worked kind of in the space for a while. So it feels like these things that are happening now are stuff that I was like, maybe that'll happen one day. And now, yeah, we're in it. It's a lot of change happening. That's scary, but also exciting. Thank you guys for having me. This has been a great interview. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Genuinely. My very final comment. I actually learned how to color your console logs from the Astro Build website. Because obviously when you open console, it's got a nice little message that's also in a bright color. And I was like, how do you even do that? I had to Google it. And I was like, you can do that? I think that was Nate Moore who did that. He's also part of the project. And yeah, it's, it's a nice little flair for that sort of thing. Exactly. It's like, do you even know what console.table does? Yeah. Yeah, thanks you guys for having me. Really genuinely meant that. It was a lot of fun. A lot of interviews where it's like, all right, so like spreadsheet of just like questions. It was fun going down memory lane a bit. And I think it's all all good context. We're really scratching our own itch with with a lot of these. We find that, you know, other because our listeners are, you know, other developers. <laughs> so